We are in the book of Amos. Uh, if you're uh, here for the first time this afternoon, this is part two of our, our series through the book of Amos, through, through this journey that we're taking together. As I said last week when we started Amos, I picked Amos because I've never heard a sermon from Amos. I've heard lots of sermons from the prodigal son. Uh, I've never heard something from the book of Amos. And so up until two weeks ago, I knew nothing about the book of Amos. I'm like, why not? What we discovered, at least in, in part last week, I, unfortunately, I was hoping to be able to do some of that historical recap that I did, but for the sake of time, I just won't be able to. But I would rem- remind you that Amos comes on the scene here in 760 B.C. 760 B.C. Israel and Judah have been experiencing a, a golden age, you might say, of peace and prosperity, and an economic boom. Life is good, and times are great. But God's not happy. Religious activity has increased, but God's not happy. But religious activity has increased. Yes, I know. The problem is that's all it is. Just religious activity. Nothing more. And so as we saw in part one, Amos brought a series of oracles speaking on behalf of God, pronouncing these indictments and these judgments on the surrounding nations. No doubt it's probably a little exciting for Israel and Judah. They're like, yeah, they're finally getting what they had coming to them. And then Amos here, as we'll begin in part two, he turns his attention to Judah and Israel. I imagine, which may have come as a surprise for some of them, as, after all, God's covenant people. And that's where we begin today in chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three sins, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, if you weren't here last week, You might say, okay, well, which is it? Is it three or is it four? Or does Amos have a hard time counting? Like, what's going on? Is this, do we understand this literally? Do we understand this symbolically? The, the numerical ordering here for three transgressions of Judah and for four. Which is it? Is it three? Is it four? And I think the best way for us to understand what Amos is saying here is he, is he speaking very symbolically as this is the exact same numerical ordering that he gives to every single nation who's being indicted here. It's not that they've done one sin, two sin, three sin. Oh wait, there was actually a fourth sin. Boom, four strikes, you're out. As much of, it's a lot of sin going on where we can probably see three to represent fullness and and four and overflow. Three fullness, four and overflow. It's not one, two, three, four things, boom, they're done. But they're just sinning and sinning and sinning. I, I like to think of it, you come to the faucet and you have an empty cup and you turn the faucet on and the cup just begins to get more full and full and it fills all the way up to the top and then once it starts overflowing, boom, we've just hit three at the brim and now it starts to overflow four and they've just filled up this cup of transgressions and sins. So he says, I will not revoke the punishment. I'm not going to revoke the punishment. And of course, as we saw last week, people say, well, God's a patient God, is he not? He's very patient. But his patience does not last forever. There comes a time when there's no more patience to give. There comes a time when 
As we see here, Judah's going to be taken out behind the woodshed. They're going to be punished. Why? Because God takes sin seriously. And this is what he says. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked. So what are they guilty of? See it. What are they guilty of? Well, they're they're guilty because they've rejected the law. say, how do you know they've rejected the law? Well, it's pretty evident. How is it evident? Well, it's evident because of their disobedience, because they haven't kept his statutes. They've rejected the law. It's evident because of their disobedience, because they haven't kept the statutes. Uh, Just quick observation. If God gives you instructions, probably a good thing to follow those instructions. We want to hopefully all agree on that. He gives you instructions. We should do that, right? The creator of the universe who spoke the world into existence. Yeah, we should listen. So what's the result? They've rejected the law. It's evident in their disobedience. They've they've not kept the statutes. They haven't followed his instructions. The result is they've been led away by lies. In fact, the same lies he references some of their ancestors have been led away by. Here they are. God gives them the law. God gives them statutes. God gives them instruction, kind of like an instruction guidebook. Here, stay on this path. This is the path I have for you. Don't deviate from this path. And what begins to happen, right? It's nothing new. It's happening for centuries, right? It's like, huh, just kind of a little trail over here. Maybe I'll just take a little step off this path, right? And at first, it, it oftentimes is like, well, it's not a big deal. It's only a little lie. It's only... Well, it's not technically gossip because I, I, I framed it in, in the use of a prayer request. So, I mean, <laughs> and then what? Justification. And then little by little, they, they start believing these lies. And now they've completely deviated off the path. There's a path of instructions, a path of the law, a path of statutes. And now they've left that path. And, and they're buying into these lies, and, and they're believing these lies, and they're justifying sin, and, or not calling it sin. And that's a problem, and it's not a new problem. He says it's a problem that, that even your fathers and, and your father's fathers have fallen into. Oh, Judah. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, we looked last week at some of the indictments against these other nations. Serious, serious things. I mean, some of these people, they're essentially backstabbing, they're they're making possibly peace agreements, and then dropping them in the shredder, and then going and, and then taking people that they just made an agreement with, and then selling them off into slavery. Selling whole whole peoples off into slavery. And if that wasn't enough, and we saw with the example in chapter 1, verse 13 with Gilead, and that's just this is just one example. That they're going in, some of these the barbaric, cruel atrocities. They are finding pregnant women, taking knives, cutting open their stomach, and just pulling out the, their babies. They're forced abortions. It's barbaric. And so we say, well, surely Judah isn't like those people. Surely their atrocities are not comparable. Are they? 
And I think that we need to answer that question in the affirmative based upon the identical judgment that God pronounces. Look at the judgment. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Much like in verse 10, right, with Tyre. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds, much like Edom and all the other countries on and on. It doesn't get into the nitty-gritty graphic details of Judah. But it seems to be very clear that the Judah, Judah's not acting as Judah ought to be acting. And so verse 6, verse 6, now he shifts his attention throughout the rest of the chapter on Israel, the ten northern tribes. And he says this, Thus says the Lord, for three, transgra- for three transgressions, for three sins of Israel, and for four, right? Three representing fullness, four and overflow. Lots of sinning happening here with Israel. I will not revoke the punishment. God's patient. Yes, He is, folks. But His patience comes to an end at some point. Why? Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. The indictment against Israel here in this passage is involved in that they're, they're mistreating other human beings. They're, they're selling people. They're, they're just selling people off. And who's doing the selling, who's doing the, the, the buying specifically is left unanswered. One commentator writes this, and I quote, more than one practice may be in view. One, the issue of corruption. Judges, jurors who accepted bribes to decide cases against the righteous. Or two, the righteous who were sold into slavery for failure to pay a debt. End quote. That the point is, is there, there are people here who are being treated in ways they should not be treated as people. God's not okay with that. And not only that, but the point here that he tries to make is the insignificance of the amount of the bribe, apparently, possibly. Like, the, the cost of a pair of sandals. And I don't know what the going rate of, of sandals is. Like, maybe like $15, $30 if you get a high-end pair. Okay? Like, my point, like, whatever it is, like, the point is, is like, it's not a lot. Like, it's a pair of sandals. And, and the issue here is that Amos is, wants us to focus is, you're, you're selling people off for about, the price that it costs to buy a pair of sandals? That's, that's the point. Like you're devaluing another human being and saying that they are equal to the cost of a pair of sandals? you got to be kidding me, Israel. Like does anybody have a problem with that? It's nothing new. It's happening for centuries. People mistreating other people, people de valuing human life happened during the Holocaust. Happens every day since, especially since Roe versus Wade. People devalue human life. God's not okay with devaluing human life because God puts a premium on human life because God made human life. And God is furious with Israel. Their behavior, their conduct is unacceptable. Verse 7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, they turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father, they go into the same girl. They have 
relations with the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. He's furious. He's not happy. He's been indicting all these other nations. And Israel, no doubt standing by, excited, seeing that justice is being poured down on their enemies. No doubt Amos turns and says, listen, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm coming for you next. So what's happening here? Well, we see it seems to be wealthy, powerful people who are, who are trying to pervert justice, who are treating the poor like dirt. They are stepping on top of the backs of the poor to better them own selves. Not only that, but they're, th- these wealthy individuals are mistreating these needy people who need help. Now, let me be fair here. Amos, and we saw this in part one, By all indications, and I argue this in part one of our series, Amos, it says, first three verses, he's a shepherd of Tekoa, Tekoa, the city a few miles south of Jerusalem. But that word shepherd, we talked about this a lot in part one, most likely it refers not just to an ordinary like blue-collar shepherd, but like someone who's a breeder of sheep. Breeder of sheep. Amos probably has enjoyed this economic boom of this golden age for the last 40 years of peace and prosperity Amos is most likely probably on the wealthier end. And so I want to address this because I don't think there's any type of issue or grievance or, or sin if someone's wealthy. That's, that's not the issue in this story. The issue in this story is how they live with their wealth. And to be, and to be fair, wealthy people have, have their own share of challenges. Jesus says, how difficult it is, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there's tons of temptations that come with wealth. One of it is self-sufficiency, right? If you're self-sufficient, you don't need anyone. Or that's the, that's the temptation. That's the, the thought. But the issue here is it's not a problem that they're wealthy. The problem is, is that they're not characterized by generosity like their father who gave them the wealth in the first place. Not only that, but they have the ability, they have the means to help these people, but they don't. It says, and they turn aside the way of the afflicted. Here are real people who need help, and they don't. Oh, I'm sure they make some excuse, right? Like the one I hear all the time, if I had more, I'd give more. That's just not true. You look at the Macedonian in Christians in 2 Corinthians 8, and what does Paul say? Like he essentially says, and I'll paraphrase, he's like, they were like a bunch of broke college students, and they gave so much. They gave not out of their wealth, they gave out of their poverty. It's just not true when we say, oh, well, if I had more, I'd give more. It's not at all. I know a lot of people who drive around in $50,000 cars who, who say that. So that's, that's the issue here. It's not that they're, that they're wealthy. That's, that's not the issue. The issue is that they're not, one, characterized by generosity. Two, they mistreat the poor directly and indirectly, and they have the ability and the means to help others, and they don't. They're mistreating people. Oh, yes, religious activity has increased in Israel. But that's all it is. It's just religious activity. They're just a joke. They're just a joke. And God sees right through all that religious activity, including at times the religious activity that we attempt to offer Him. 
so they're mistreating people. And God's not okay with mistreating people. He's not okay with mistreating people. And then we get to verse 8, and he goes on, and he gives a further explanation in verse 8. He says, They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. A little bit of explanation, I think, for verse 8. And I'm going to cite the law here from Exodus 22, 26-27, if you're jotting down notes. I'm just going to paraphrase this, but I'm citing Exodus 22, 26 to 27, as well as Deuteronomy 24, 12 to 13, and Deuteronomy 24, 17. But essentially this, understand this, the, the law required the creditors returned pledged garment to their owners at, at sunset. Now, this kind of struck me strange, because when I think of pledged items, Items for collateral, I think of like a truck, a car, a watch. Like I don't think like, you know, you come and you say, hey, can you just hang on to my pair of pants for the day? Like, I'll, like, like hang on to my jacket for the day? Like, like an item of clothing, like my pair of socks? It just struck me as strange, but that's what they would do here. They'd say, hey, like, here's my outer garment. Maybe if it helps, think of it like that, you know, a nice, uh, Columbia winter jacket. Here, just hold on to this. Like, here, here's my pledge. Here's my collateral. But they had to be returned at sunset. In fact, you couldn't take a widow's garment. It wasn't to be taken and pledged at all. And if you think about the implications of this, it gets rather cold at night in desert areas. Temperature drops, and if someone's a poor man, that outer garment, that might be all that he has to protect him from the elements. So they, they need to give this back. And what's the issue? They're not being given back. Once again, the poor the less fortunate, they're being mistreated. They're being trampled upon. The powerful and the wealthy in Israel are enjoying themselves at the expense of the powerless and the destitute. But God sees it. He sees what's going on. And He's not happy. He's not happy at all. And so... He says this, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, it's a strange statement, worth some exploration and explaining, I suppose. The issue is not the consuming of wine. That's not the issue. Now, of course, I know, you're going to ask me, and I'd rather just address this now than at small group later in the week, so... Um, I would say this, uh, if you're not 21, you shouldn't be drinking alcohol. If you go to a school, say, like Liberty, and you said you wouldn't drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol. If you gave your word, just don't do that. Okay? But, but the issue is not that they're drinking, but that the fact that they've taken this wine that apparently has been seized and confiscated. Now, when I think of things being seized and confiscated, I don't normally think of like the IRS coming in and raiding my refrigerator. I don't. That's not what happens and goes through my mind. But apparently what's happening is these people, they've had certain elements of personal property seized as a fine, as some type of debt payment. And the point that Amos is trying to make here is that he views this, we don't know necessarily why it happened, but for whatever reason he views it here as an oppressive act, that it shouldn't have been taken from them in the first place. And here's the example. The poor being mistreated. The innocent being mistreated. The righteous being mistreated. God doesn't like it when people are mistreated. 
He doesn't. And they're mistreating them. I know, by the way, that it says in verse 8, uh, in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fine. Notice the phrase, that the house of their God. It's not the house of the Lord, not the house of Yahweh, the house of their God. Listen, they may have thought that they were worshiping the Lord, but they weren't. Hence the translation. They may have thought that they were worshiping God, but they weren't. What they're doing, just pagan, as far as Amos is concerned. It's just pagan. That's, that's the issue here in the story. Lots of religious activity, but that's all it is. Just religious activity. Just worldly people coming, saying that they love God, and they don't. It's not evident by how they are, right? It's kind of like the, you know, you might call them the, the Sunday-only Christians, and then from Monday to Saturday, you're like, wait, you're a Christian? I, I would have had no idea. Because how they live between the rest of the week, the rest of the days of the week, it matters. And how they've been living and how they've been treating other people completely contradicts everything else they say they believe in and, and trust. It's just religious activity. They're mistreating people. And it's not worship. And so, verse 9, he says this, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. The reference to the fruit and the roots is an expression of total extermination of the Amorite. Who was the Amorite, you say? You back up a little bit, you hit rewind, and the Amorites lived where Israel's living. They lived there in Palestine. And you may remember, you go back to Numbers chapter 13. I'll paraphrase verses 28 to 33 of Numbers 13. They send the spies out. Go and they spy out the land. They say, Oh, it is a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. But oh, we got a problem because the guys there, they're monstrous. They're giants. We're, we're like grasshoppers to them. We'll never be able to take it. So he reminds them. Remember? Remember that? You sent out the spies. You said we're like grasshoppers. You said they're too strong. They're too big. They're too powerful. And what did I do? I came through for you. I fought the battle for you. I destroyed your enemies. Did you forget that, Israel? Did I not do that, Israel? Let's rewind a little bit more. Verse 10. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite before you even got to the point where you were sending out spies into the land before that even happened. I took you out of Egypt. Have you forgotten that? You were there. You were in this terrible situation and I brought you out. And then you wandered for 40 years and I took care of you every step of the way. Week after week, I was there. Have you forgotten that? Did I not do that? Then verse 11. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not do that for you? Was I not faithful to you? Was I not constant for you? Was I? 
And here in verse 11, he, he reminds them that he gave them spiritual leaders, Nazarites and prophets. Nazarites, they, they had to abstain from alcoholic beverages. They had to abstain from cutting their hair from con- contact with corpses, according to number six. Samson, he's a well-known Nazarite, and maybe not the best example. Also Samuel, he's a, he's a Nazarite. But the point is, is God gave them these spiritual leaders to help them so they wouldn't be ignorant so that they might follow his laws and his statutes and his instructions in case they started to deviate, to to pull them back on that path. And what's happened so far? Well, he says in verse 12, But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. See, Israel is being indicted here because... Israel's response to God's graciousness, His goodness, His const, His, His, His just being constant in their lives, like despite that, like despite His goodness, despite His grace, despite His provision, they've essentially said, forget you, God. They've essentially given God the middle finger. You say, that's pretty offensive. Yes! Sin is offensive! Think about that! You wonder why God is furious right now with them. He's been so good, so kind, so faithful, so gracious. He gave them these spiritual leaders, and what did they do? He gave them the Nazarites and the prophets to help them, and what have they done? They forced the Nazarites to break their vow. They know they're not supposed to be drinking alcohol, and they told the prophets, shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. You're not, you're not talking to us. We don't want to hear what you have to say. You say, why? Why would they do that? And this is the reason why. This is the explanation. Because worldly people, they're uncomfortable around people who love God. Worldly people, they don't, they don't want to hang out with people who love God. And this includes worldly people, oftentimes, who call themselves Christians. And sometimes maybe you can... Maybe you can kind of navigate the waters and you can maybe get a sense sometimes, you know, I've, you know, sometimes, I'm not saying this is always the case, but sometimes, you know, you have a conversation and, and you can tell, right? Like when people love God and you're like, man, how are you doing spiritually? And they're like, oh, I'm doing good. And you can tell, like, they, they just want the conversation in there. They don't want to talk about it. And you talk to someone else, you're like, how are you doing spiritually? Oh, I'm doing so great. Like, I was reading Acts 16 today, and Paul and Barnabas, they're there in Philippi. They just met Lydia from, from Thyatira. And then uh, the magistrates threw them in jail, and they met the Philippian jailer, and there was an earthquake, and then the jailer got saved, his whole family, and they met Jesus. It was so awesome. Like, you, you could tell, right? Because that's part of the issue here. And definitely one that affects well, those of us living in the South, you know, I don't know if you know this. This is a 2015 statistic. Lynchburg, um, one of the most Bible-minded cities in America, top 100 most Bible-minded cities on that same list, top 100 most unchurched cities. It's a 2015 Barna, Barna statistic from the spring. Most Bible-minded, one of the most unchurched, right? Because what do you have? You have a lot of people who say, oh, no, I'm a Christian. I'm good to go. Oh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I done did that, Pastor. I prayed that prayer. I'm good. No, no, don't worry about me. I'll see you next Easter. Right, yeah? 
See, worldly people, they feel uncomfortable around the Nazarites, around the prophet-like people who love God and it's so evident they love God and they're like, I don't want to, I don't want to be around them. Why? Because it's convicting. Huh, you're going to crash our party. You're going to crash our party. They don't, they don't want to be around light or hear truth. John 3.19, the light has come into the world, but they preferred the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so they would rather, as Romans 1.18 says, suppress the truth about God. They don't want to hear it. They don't even want to be around people like Nazarites, like prophets, like these spiritual leaders that God has provided as a gift to help them. Because they'd rather just enjoy the lies that they have been following after. And so they've got one of two options. One, repent. Bring their life into line with what God's word says. Or two, the only other option is you tell the prophets to shut up. We don't want to hear what you have to say. You get the Nazarites, well, you get them to, to join in with you. You know what their vows are. You know they're not supposed to be doing certain things, and, and you pull them in anyways. That's what you do. And we begin to think, oh yeah, it makes a lot of sense why God's so furious right now. <laughs> why he's done with patience for these folks. And so, he says in verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Here's the image. Think of like a heavy, heavy cart. And as it goes on the road, and the grass and the dirt, the wheels are turning and it's just pressing the, the ground down. And as the cart rolls along, you can see where the lines are behind the wheels just pressing down on the ground. And he says, that's what I'm going to do to you. This is going to be highly uncomfortable and highly unpleasant. I'm sick of all this phoniness, this religious activity. I'm done with it. I'm done. Verse 14, 15, and 16. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow, the archer, he shall not stand. And he who is swift of foot, the, the light infantry type, he shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, the, the armor officer maybe. And, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Amos describes this day of panic. A day of just total chaos. Where Israel is going to be totally defeated. The swift? They're not going to be swift enough. The strong? Oh, the strong will not be strong enough. Even the mighty warrior will be unable to escape with his life. The archer won't make a difference. Neither the, the foot soldier, neither the horseman or the charioteer. It won't make a difference. Even the bravest warriors will flee from the battlefield naked. There's no escaping God's punishment. And this is something that when Amos announces this, may have come as a little bit of a surprise. Because for their understanding, and we'll see this later on in chapter 5, but they expected this great day of the Lord to bring with it benefits. And yet it's kind of sounding not so good right now. Like super unpleasant.
Here's the point. All nations and all people are accountable to God. See, God, He cares a lot when we mistreat people. God cares a lot when we mistreat each other. He doesn't like that. He doesn't tolerate that. It might seem like you're getting away with it. You're not. When, when, when people oppress other people, when people dehumanize other people, when they take away the rights of other people, when, especially when it's helpless people, and that's very much the issue here. Helpless, poor people. They're going to be held accountable. And they can't claim some special relationship to, to ultimately save them. Like, it's, it's very possible, like, here, Amos, he's indicting all these other nations in part one of our series. Israel's probably super caught off guard when he turns to Judah and Israel, and they're like, wait, what? Us? No, 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 hold on. We're the covenant people of God. Like, hang on a second. Like, we're, we're Christians. You got the, you got it mixed up for a second. You, you claim a special relationship with God and you somehow think that you're immune. Like, that you, that you, you've got immunity. Like, like, cue the survivor music. Like, that's just not happening here. It's not. And a lot of people, right? Especially in the South. Very, very Bible-minded, yet, at least in this city, very unchurched. It's, I've done, I, I done did that, Pastor. I'm good to go. No. Maybe, maybe not, my friend. Maybe you need to listen here. John Piper tells the story. He was, I think he was in his 30s at the time. He was counseling a young woman who was in an adulterous relationship. And he asked her, he says, are you going to go see that other guy this weekend? And she said, well, well, I don't really know. Like, maybe, I don't know. Which I thought was an interesting response, because that's something like I would respond to if you said, are you going to go to Chick-fil-A or like Pizza Hut? I'd be like, eh, I don't really know. Like, so, she, are you going to see this other guy or are you not going to see this other guy this weekend? Eh, I don't know. What do you mean? You know, and she reminds him of, of Romans 8, a passage I quoted last week, maybe familiar. Uh, this is uh, verse 37, I think. And nothing can separate from the love of God, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. And all creation can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and she quoted that to him. She quoted that to him after he looked at her in the eye and he said, if you continue to do this, you will go to hell. And she was flabbergasted. Apparently no one had ever said that to her before. So if you, if you continue to do this, you will go to hell. And she said, well, that's not what my pastor said before you. And she quoted Romans 8 and said, see, see, I've got immunity. I, I, I'm off the hook. And he says, that's not what that verse means. But a lot of people think, well, I'm a Christian, or I've done did that, pastor, or I'm part of the covenant people of God, so I've got immunity. No doubt Israel, they're, they're clapping, they're cheering as Amos pronounces these judgments on all these other nations for their wickedness. And then he looks at them and says, I don't know why you're clapping. 
I've got something. I've got a message for you now. The woman was flabbergasted. Piper looks her in the eyes. and says, if you continue to do this, you will go to hell. We love to presume upon the grace of God. But that's foolish of the utmost. In other words, if you continue to do this, you make it very clear and make it evident that you never knew him in the first place. Oh, Israel. Oh, church. It's unclear when Amos brings these messages in 760 BC. It is unclear whether this was like one message in one day or whether this message happened over the series of several days, several weeks, months. In fact, it's many commentators believe it happened over the series of several months. In other words, this is, makes it more egregious. If this is the case, Amos is making all these pronouncements on all these other nations and Israel is just standing here and instead of thinking, huh, maybe we better like, uh, think about things. Maybe we should do some repenting because it's not going so well for them over there. They're just like, whatever, right? We got immunity. We're the covenant people of God. We're off the hook. He's not going to come for us. The moral of the story is, All nations, all people are accountable to God. What we do matters. How we treat other people, it really matters. Especially how we treat each other. And God has zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. And some of us, we need to learn. Like if if Israel's standing here watching this indictment happening, and we're standing here watching Israel watch the indictment, maybe we would be better off if we, like, okay, I see how that goes. Okay, I see how that goes. Like, okay, maybe like, like I should start like repenting. I should start like fleeing from the wrath to come. You know, it's like in those dinosaur movies and you're like, like how long are they going to wait before like they run, before they flee? Oh, that we might learn these lessons. So as the band comes, I want to pray for us right now. Lord, we love you. And God, help us to not presume upon the goodness of your grace. You gave all these examples of how you helped Israel from taking the land to prior to taking the land, all these times that you were good to them, that you were faithful to them. And this is, this is how they responded to your goodness and your grace. We don't want to be like that, God. I don't want to be like that. God, and yet I know, God, that my heart is so prone to wander. God, take my heart, bind it like a, like a fetter. Don't let me go, God. Don't let us go. Because apart from your grace, this could be us. Oh, that we might learn. Help us, God. We need you, Jesus. Thank you for the story. I pray that today it would be more than just words on a page. Amen.